My name is Ashburner. My Christian name is Alano Hector Tracy. At present, I'm air traffic controller at Cywell Aerodrome near Northampton. Um, I've had quite a long flying experience, and I knew when I first my saw, saw my first aircraft where I wanted to be, up there flying. I was at prep school at Birchington, and I remember looking out of the dormitory window early one summer morning to see two aircraft come flying along the coast. It was about six o'clock in the morning. I roused the whole school, and we all went out and cheered. Well, that was way back in 1910 or 11. <coughs> Long before I was old enough, I started applying unsuccessfully for the RFC. And so on June the 17th, 1917, I joined the army and was sent to Chiseldon on Salisbury Plain as a Tommy. But by the end of that year, I transferred to the RFC as a cadet. And I was posted to Hastings where we did KRRs and general officer training. And every morning there, it was PT before breakfast for us in singlets and shorts. Out on the seafront, it was a winter, snow and ice, and jolly tough, we thought. After that, we went to Denham to learn theory of flight and engines and rigging. We used to practice on an old Martin side fuselage, and also had to learn the workings of the monster trap and the crochet and RAF engines. We were signaling by Morse, and buzzer, lamp, and flag, and then scraped through the signaling. And the course finished after exams at the end of March 1918. On the whole, it was most enjoyable. It was jolly hard work. Now, April that year, 1918, saw the beginning of the RAF. Another cadet and I were posted to East Church to do our flying training. Now, this had been a Royal Naval Air Service station, and all the personnel there were RNAs when we arrived. We were young and green. We had no idea of naval etiquette. And we felt very much out of things. Being the only bod in RFC uniforms, we were the object of much scorn, and we were made general dog's bodies until more RFC people arrived later on. So it was a thrill being sent to East Church, first aircraft I had ever seen all those years before came from there. And here I was with a brand new logbook. I see I was taken for my first flight in an Avro 504K number 8989 on the 20th of April, by Squadron Commander Carr. It was noted down in my log, but it was as a trial trip. The wind was west, and we were up for 15 minutes and climbed to 2,000 feet. He didn't pull any punches, but he gave me loose roll spins a lot, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think if I'd been sick, I'd have been turned down. Anyway, after that, I started to learn to fly on a DH-6 with an RAF engine. Carr was my instructor. A very impatient man cursed me all the time for the Gosport tubes. After two lessons with him, I was handed over to Captain Biscay, a Canadian, who was also impatient and clear. Both these instructors made me feel I could never learn to fly. It seemed to be so ham-handed and heavy-footed. I did two hours with them on DH-60s. During that time, his exhaust fell off twice and once was a better leak. His life was never dull. Then I went on to Avro 504Ks with Monosopath engines with Captain De Quincey. By this time I could fly fairly well straight in the level and do turns correctly. Anyway, Captain De Quincey was totally different to Carr and Disco. He was very patient and he refused to explain one's faults. I got on well with him and soon went solo. 
He never used to step himself in. The only time he nearly showed annoyance was when I was told to do a loop. I hung on to the top with no G. Just that that was not very clever, that burner. He nearly dropped me out. Now, the Monaster Pap was a chancy piece of machinery, and of course, landings were the rule rather than the exception. One seldom went out at gliding distance to the aerodrome. And I see my logbook records my first solo in a softest pup on the 13th of June, 1918. I'd done about 29 hours total flying by that time. It was a far lighter and more responsive aircraft in the airplane, and I treated it with due respect. I find it quite easy to fly. At this time, the country was suffering from an epidemic of Asian flu. The bug hit me while I was flying a puff. I remember landing being put in, that, put in an ambulance and taken to hospital. So I must have been pretty sick. Anyway, I didn't fly again until the middle of July and did a refresher course in the airplane, and then back again to pups. I did my first solo on a camel, number 7300, on the 28th of July, 1918. And I see I did loops, rolls, spins, and immelmans. I'd been very well briefed by keeping plenty of speed in the right-hand turn to avoid tipping into spin. I never had any difficulty with a camel, though several of my friends were spun in and they were killed. After the camel course, I was sent to the area instructor's flying school at Manston. There I really learned how to fly, and I became an instructor and was sent back to East I tried to model my instruction on Captain De Quincey's methods, and also didn't strap myself in. I had the same experience of nearly falling out when the pupil hung on the top of the loop. Anyway, I managed to save myself. I hung on to the seat with both hands, and saved my reactions from all violence and princes. After that, I always strapped myself in with flying with the pupil. And later on, we had a dual camel allotted to us. Then only three or four of these were uh, converted. The normal single-seater camel, the petrol tank is behind the pilot's seat. And then to convert them, the petrol tank is taken out and another seat and controlled during the storage. A small tank is put in the center section to give 30 minutes endurance, and the people sat in front and the instructor behind. He was supposed to give instruction on loops, rolls, spins, and landings. Everything shuddered so much in aerobatics that I cut the instruction down to landings on right-hand circuits and spin recovery. To recover from a right-hand spin, it's necessary to push the stick forward to the dashboard, but on full left rudder, after which one pulled out from a vertical dive, and we lost at the very least 300 feet. Anyway, I was demobbed in 1919 and studied engineering. When I left university, the RAF had been severely cut back. The country was in the throes of post-war depression, then. I thought myself strongly fortunate to get a job planting sugar in British Guiana. And I stayed there for eight years and didn't start flying again until 1929. I had taken a job as a ranch manager on the Brazil-Guiana border because they wanted someone to fly the direction 300 miles up country. The journey that, journey that normally took three weeks by boat up the Essequibo and Rupununi River. Anyway, I returned to England on leave and I took my A license to the Bristol and Wessex Flying Club. It faced Hilton then. They had D8 Suez masks. I think the registration of one was Golf Echo Bravo X-ray Foxtrot. Anyway, my first thought on seeing these machines was, this is a cleaned-up version of the DH-6. And I think a comparison of photographs of them would confirm this. It didn't take long to go solo again. I soon got my A license.
in my experience, flying, like cycling, something one never really forgets. The judgment of the approach may be a bit rusty, and the first landing a bit rough, but at least it's safe. In January 1930, the aerodrome at Church Bristol was open, and the club moved over there. I remember ferrying one of their aircraft across. There was one large hangar that was bitterly cold. The clubhouse wasn't finished then. Whitchurch was a grass field, in the middle of which was a white chalk ring encircling the name Bristol in large white letters. I don't remember any commercial flying there at that time. The Wills family were great club supporters, and Len Williams was the club secretary. He held that position for many years. I had to return to Guiana in February to take up my duties on the ranch. Unfortunately, due to the depression of the thirties, they didn't buy the aircraft after all. Perhaps it was for the best because it would have meant flying over two hundred miles of rainforest before reaching the savannah where one could at least make a forced landing. I hate to think what might have happened if the engine had failed over that kind of country. I spent five years ranching, came home again in 35, I rejoined the club at Whitchurch. By this time, there was a good clubhouse and a much bigger membership. It was a pleasure to meet Dan Williams again and an instructor named Slade. The club had more aircraft, two gypsy moths, golf, alpha, bravo, whiskey mike, and golf, alpha, bravo, tango, puffer, and a moth major, golf, alpha, charlie, puffer, tango which had the Gypsy Major engine. Also, there was an Avro Cadet Golf Alpha Delta Foxtrot Delta with a Genet engine with a radial. I fell in love with the Cadet because its engine was the nearest approach to the rotary engines I had been used to in 504K's Pups and Camels. It was beautiful handle and fully aerobatic. The radial engine seemed much smoother than the inline engine, and I liked the snub nose with a tiny end ring. The cadet's darkish blue it had a silver tarnian ring, a silver flash and registration letter, silver wings. It looked very smart. I used to fly from Whitchurch to Leicester to visit my parents who lived in Rutland about twenty miles away. These are people of Thornston. And there was a privately owned Bristol fighter in the hangar there. I'd loved it, got a flight on it, but unfortunately I never met the owner. In Barnstable was another aircraft aerodrome I liked these things. It was a small field on the edge of the river with a pleasant clubhouse. A short sign with two Pobdoy engines used to operate from there on a service to Lundy Island. I saw it on many occasions and used to walk admiringly around it. Of course, during the war, Barnstable was engulfed by RAF Chipna. I've also pleasant recollections of Christchurch near Bournemouth. We used to enjoy flying there from Bristol and out over the sea and land for tea at their small wooden clubhouse where visitors were always welcome and I used to return to Bristol in the evening. Other aerodromes I knew were Whitney near Oxford and Woodley at Reading. I hadn't been into Whitney since Armistice, Armistice Day 1918 and three of us had to ferry 504Ks back to East York. I hadn't changed very much. Remember that Armistice Day? Everybody stopped work and couldn't get the aircraft out, so we decided to go into Oxford. We got a lift on the outskirts, a uh, lift to the outskirts, and made our way into the town. 
And on the meeting procession led by a very drunken policeman, who made a car that was strewn with young people shouting and cheering. And behind that, a cheering crowd of soldiers and civilians and undergrads. The three of us booked into a hotel for the night and joined in the general rejoicing. When we woke up with thick heads the following morning, so we must have done pretty well. Before leaving the hotel, we finished all the toilet rolls we could find. We went to the station to get a train to Whitney. We loaded up the toilet paper from the station and from the latrines at Whitney. We had brown sheets of paper there. Eventually, we got airborne and on our way to East Church flew over London. We circled there and tossed out streamers and sheets of bog paper. We see the people running to pick them up and had a jolly good chuckle. Anyway, when we got back to East Church, we found all the furniture and the mess had been broken up. It was burnt during the previous night's celebration. The annoying thing was that we were charged for the damage on our mess bill. It was twice proving we'd been at auction. Still, that's like that. However, this is digressing. By 1935, commercial flying was coming into its own. Before I left Tiana, Pan American shippers were flying down to Rio. They were landing in the rivers and harbors. Art Williams was flying supplies to the British Guiana Brazil Boundary Commission. He was using a Waco flying boat. He was landing in jolly tight spots in the river. There was one place on the Corinthine River where he used to land at a right angle bend. The co-pilot used to climb along the wing after touchdown to get the wingtips close in the water so he could give enough drag to get round. Art came up to a ranch once and he landed on the lake behind the house. To take off he had to get round in a bend in the lake and there wasn't much room after that. He asked me to get my vaqueros to hold on to a lasso on the tail while he revved up. And he gave the signal and the slip knot was pulled and off he went. Just managed to make it. Well, he was a marvelous guy. My mother had never flown by 1935. Although I had taken my father up in an Avro 504K in 1918, he said he'd never repeat the experience. I'm afraid I retaliated for some of the hidings I'd had as a boy and threw the aircraft around a bit. Anyway, by 1935, I was a little wiser and had mother flown from Leicester in a fox moth to have lunch with me in Bristol. He thoroughly enjoyed that flight there and back. I didn't come much into contact with commercial flying that year. There was a service from Western Supermare to Cardiff with the H-84, the H-84, the Dragon. I went over in one of them once to see the King's Cup race, which Cardiff was one of the stopping points. I joined the Leicester Club in that September, uh, when I stayed with my people in Rutland. There was a moth there, uh, Golf Alpha, Tango Foxtrot, I think, where I used to beat up my head as a matter of routine. In October 1935, I returned to British Guiana to check in for gold until November 38. And then I returned to this country to try and get financial backing to tow the company. I left my partner to look after the train. We thought we'd make a fortune, but we went broke instead. There was no money for that kind of speculation. So this was the time of the Munich crisis, of which we had heard nothing in British Guiana. In fact, I was halfway across it. The Atlantic before I knew anything of the situation in Europe. Of course, I never wanted to get back into the RAF, and I was too old, they did. Anyway, I started flying again with the Bristol and West Club of Whitchurch in January 1939. They still had my old favorite, Alpha Delta, Fox, Fox Delta, the average of that. 
I had 30 minutes refresher and reviewed my A license. Slade was still there and another instructor named Hood. The club now had a wicker, golf alpha fox spot alpha Julian. We used to fly that quite a lot. There were many changes by this time, for instance, the control tower and radio. Not that the club aircraft used radio. Lights, green or red, attached us. Radios for the big boys. Railway air services, GH89. Always used to dangle a trailing aerial out and bash out tops and dashes and more. Anyway, the 89 was a grand workforce that gave extended service for many years in the 30s, as well as during and after the war. It was about this time I happened to see an advertisement for air traffic control officers and applied. I was accepted and I did a training course in London under F.H. Robinson. When I had passed the exams, I was sent to Croydon. That was London's main airport for continental traffic in those days. Imperial Airways was still operating the Hannibal class aircraft. And they were quite an impressive sight in the occasions. Uh, their chief pilot was Captain O.P. Jones. He had a Captain Kettle beard and was always immaculate in, in his uniform and white gloves. It was always a, an occasion with a capital O when he went aboard. All the staffs lined up and saluted. Then there were the smaller firms that operated from Croydon, Ollies and Morton's, etc. They mainly used GH-89s. Of course, we had the other continental airlines in and out, as Air France and KLM and Godzilla's Panzer and Sabina, and they went to Brussels. There was always great rivalry between Imperial Airways and Air France and the London Paris route. Air France had passed their aircraft and used to leave after Imperial Airways and arrive a couple of minutes ahead of them. Anyway, later on, the Imperial Airways got the DH Albatross. It was a beautiful aircraft, wooden low-wing job, and four gypsy six-engines. It was superior to the French Air France aircraft. And then they added the Armstrong Whitworth Ensign to fleet. An all-metal high-wing monoplane for Bristol radio. That was a great innovation for the British commercial aircraft. In those days, all messages from control to aircraft were passed in Morse. There were a couple of Morton aircraft which were RT, but you could never read them. In those days, there were no NDBs or VORs, and the only navigational facility was MSDF through an ADCOT station, which always used to suffer from night effects and static. Aircraft would pass their positions over a visual reporting point or an estimated position. Up in the control tower, we used to move pins bearing the aircraft registration over the map, and we always used to hope the control's estimate would be near the aircraft's actual position. On the whole, it worked out quite well. Bringing aircraft in when the visibility was poor and the cloud base low was done by ear on the final place. The controller had to go out on the balcony and listen to the noise of the engine and send signals to the aircraft indicating his position, such as notice north, notice southeast, etc. It was all a very hit and miss affair. One was liable to get confused by the sound of a green line bus passing along Curly Way. And of course, if aircraft engines were running up on the tar tarmac nearby, it was impossible. Air France used to make it in the most appalling conditions when other aircraft would need an attempt no station manager would come up to the tower and dance around like a cat on hot bricks. Can't remember what his name was now. 
Anyway, I respected the Air France's pilot's ability. I wouldn't have cared to fly with them, so the passengers didn't realize what was happening. I wouldn't have cared to accept it all as part of the excitement of air traveling. And then I was posted to Heston in July 1939. Here we had British Airways on their internal services. We used Lockheed 14, and British American also based there with the 886s and Falcons. The chief pilot was Rayleigh Fort, later a test pilot on the Vulcan. Now, Heston was the London terminal for UK and Irish services, and Jersey, Opera Jersey Airways operated the Channel Islands with the 889. But just before the war, they got two of the eight flamingos, high wing, all metal monoplanes with the slender. Now, that was a great innovation, about half the time between Jersey and Heston. There were a lot of privately owned aircraft based at Heston also, the Moth and Compass Scripts, and the Beechcraft biplanes with back backward stagger. A lovely looking aircraft, I think. There was a DH Dragonfly, an airspeed envoy, that was a very new look aircraft in those days. Then there was also an HL Blue Lockheed 12, which used to go on secret photographic missions. Heston's flourishing flying club used Avro Cadets, pilot gypsy engines. Somehow they looked all wrong as the cadet was built for the Janet Radio. I never flew a gypsy cadet, so I can't compare the performance. In Hanworth, posed by operator Sierra Autogaro, they sometimes came into Heston. They always used to amaze us with their jump fast from the apron. But what strides have been made in developing the modern helicopter? With war imminent, there was a lot of night flying on army cooperation. Heston and Hanworth based aircraft used to fly assigned courses and heights for searchlight practice. The pilots liked this cooperation, it meant extra money for them, and anything that was WT that could, could get airborne took part. They all returned to Heston at the end of their details, in the 89s, 86s. Monarch spars, fuckers, moths, and doing luck. They all seemed to arrive together. It was quite a job getting them down safely. In those days, we just had to look out in the balcony. We used to call out the number one was coming in over the boundary. At the outbreak of war, I was posted to Perth, the school. The two of us shared a 24-hour watch. The Marcus and Bottoms were up there also. They had handlings and they were doing GHF experiments. Always up in the tower, and we kept on trying out different types of aerial. As a first of three months, and during that time, two aircraft managed to fly in from German-occupied territory on the continent. And where I was restless, the country was short of pilots. Newly formed air transport auxiliary had written, inviting me to join them as, as a ferry pilot. The Ministry of Aviation wouldn't release me from the reserve occupation. And then at the end of 39, I went to Dice, Aberdeen. Allied Airways, run by Gandadar, operated from there. We used to go to Inverness, Dick, Yorkshire, and Shetland Islands. They used DH-84s and 89s, and they did sterling service, I think. There were no runways at Dice when I arrived. One was started soon afterwards. The RAF were also based there. At first, there were Tiger Moths and Coastal Submarine Patrol. But later they got answered, and one of these was said to have sunk a submarine. Anyway, when the runway was completed, the squadron of Spitfires arrived. 
and they shot down a German bomber which fell into a new skating rink just prior to the official opening. It was most annoying. I was a keen skater and the old rink was rather small. After about a year at Dice, I was posted to Whitchurch, Bristol. KLM were there, flying their DC-3s. They'd managed to snatch them out of Holland during the German invasion. Uh, number, ferry pool, number two ferry pool of the ATA were also based at Whitchurch. And I determined to get flying again somehow. Anyway, after a long battle, I gained permission to fly for ATA in my spare time, in the understanding that I should receive no remuneration. I was delighted, and I went to White Orphan at the number one ferry pool for a flight test on the Tiger Night. I qualified for class one aircraft, so the light single, and started flying for ATA in April 1941. At that time, there were quite a lot of civil aircraft in the 30s which had to be ferried to RAF stations and put under guard. I had a great time flying these types. My first Tiger Moth was the flight test. Now I was finding them daily on my job sheet. The more responsive aircraft than the VH-60 were very much the same to fly. And then I had a Hornet moth. Belies its name, it's got no Hornet qualities. Nice comfortable aircraft, and this one is enclosed in the cabin. Another is the Queen B, that's the radio-controlled Tiger Moth, used for target practice. I'd have liked to have been flown in one radio-controlled by the, from the ground, but I never got that chance. I used to take most of these to Man of Beer. And one day I had a nice Miles Falcon, a Gypsy 6 engine. Like all the Miles aircraft, it's a lovely machine. And there's still one flying today, and at the moment it's in Shackleton's hangar at Coventry. Another time I was flying a Piper Cub with a Continental engine. I had to pick up an American pilot from somewhere in Lincolnshire. The jolly long hard drag there against the wind. Anyway, he flew me back, but he wouldn't refuel. He thought we'd have enough, have enough, um, petrol. Anyway, we didn't. We had a forced landing in a plowed field near Cologne. We rang the airfield there and they brought over a jelly can of petrol. We managed to scrape over the heads and got back to Whitchurch without their realizing we'd had a forced landing. My next new type for oysters was either Cirrus or Lycoming engines. I liked the Lycomings as they were a good deal faster. But they are all tricky little beasts to land really smoothly. And I had a real thrill. A hawker heart in Cardiff Radium. The heart and its variants were among the aristocracy of the biplane era. They looked beautiful and were beautiful to handle. Kestrel engines started by a mechanic on each side of the engine, winding up the inertial starting. This made a low whining noise at first, and gradually increased in tips until it became a squeal. One letting the touch, the engine spluttered into life and then became a healthy roar. The mechanics took a poor view of the pilots who failed to get started on the first line. Through the heart, the order, find and Hector. The Hector had a da uh, dagger H type of engine. The cruising revs and rows were about 3,000, which seemed very high after the 1800s we used to use on the test And there was the Blackburn Shark with a Pegasus engine. That's more or less in the same category, but not nearly as crisp as the heart type. And then came a swordfish. My first swordfish was from Hard and Genevraven on a cold winter's day. It was surprisingly cozy and warm in spite of an open cockpit. The swordfish also had a Pegasus engine. It was a far superior aircraft to his part. 
I was lucky enough to get a Western Wallace one day from Pembrey to Whitchurch. I had no handling notes for it, so just do it by feel. I found the elevator trim cost shortly after takeoff, but apart from that it's handled normally. Another nice aircraft was the Miles Whitney Strait, a small low-wing monoplane with pitchy engine. It had all the good Miles characteristics of responsive handling. My first experience of aircraft with a retractable undercarriage was a DA Eagle with a gypsy engine. The retraction was manual by winding it up with a handle. It was a fairly advanced aircraft for its time, and I remember how pleased I was with it and how well it flew. Two more, two more aristocrats in the biplane class, which of course was a dust gauntlet, and the gladiator, both had Bristol Mercury. They were very similar to fly, the gauntlets had an open cockpit, the gladiator was sliding canopy. I collected the gauntlet at Turn Hill and had no handling notes. Wing Commander came up and gave me a briefing on it. He'd been using it as his private hack. Unfortunately, I mentioned that it was going to be taken to locking to be pulled apart for training by RAF riggers. When I was ready to taxi out away with the trucks away, turned away to the Wing Commander. No tears, I mean, down to stay. The signet for the Gypsy Major engine was the first tricycle under, uh, undercarriage aircraft I flew. I was very disappointed with that. I think it was an all-metal job. Anyway, it seemed to be very underpowered. Then there was the DH-80, the Pussmoth, with the de Havilland stamp of beating about it. That's an aircraft. Now, the Lozander was a Class II aircraft in APA, but I had a special dispensation of fly them, as we had many in and out of Yoko. They carried quite a few. They had very good short takeoff and landing qualities. They took a bit of getting used to. They had leading edge slots. I always used to judge my correct approach by seeing the slots come out. The trim worked the vari variable incidence tailplane. And to make a good three pointer, one had to get the trim wound fully back so the tail wouldn't come down. An overshoot in this con configuration is tricky. You couldn't open up full throttle, and had to hold it down against the trim. So there's a bit of throttle, wind off the trim, more throttle, and trim in stages, until it could be held comfortably. I spent my leave from air traffic control duties that year to do a conversion course onto class two aircraft, those were single engine fighter types. It was an excellent course, with a ground school on engines and constant speed, constant speed props, and um, there was a flying conversion course on Harvard's Master Ones with a test engine, and then solo on a hurricane. And that felt like being sent off in a racing car after driving an old jalopy. In ATA, we had to deliver 30 hurricanes without an incident before being allowed to fly a Spitfire. To me, this was the perfect aircraft. I think my first Spitfire was the biggest thrill of my life. Despite a short trip from Neoville to Cologne, I could take in ten minutes. Anyway, I stayed up for half an hour and enjoyed every moment of it. The unbelievable smoothness after the hurricane. It was just as easy to land as a tiger moth. Well, after that, I always used to try and get strip fires as often as possible. Of course, as part-time unpaid ferry pilot, I had no uniform. And so, fairly well known around the RAF station, pilots in channels and shirt sleeves were rare at that period of the war. There were awkward moments, however, when I threw a strip to Exeter one day, 
I missed the Anson taxi aircraft back to Whitchurch. I had to return by train. As I waited on the station with my parachute, I was arrested by the military police and taken to the waiting room for interrogation. What are you doing with a parachute? It's mine. I've just flown into Exeter. Why aren't you in uniform? I haven't one. What aircraft were you flying? Spitfire. Well, that really threw them. I don't think they believed the word I said. Anyway, eventually I pulled out my red ATA pass permitting entry to any air, aircraft factory or airfield. And they were still unconvinced and insisted on winning the ferry field for confirmation. And I only just managed to catch my train to get back in time for night duty in the control tower picture. From 1941 to 1943, I was on control duty every other night, flying five days a week from dawn to sunset, unless the weather was quite impossible. Eventually, I came so tired that one day in September 43, I fell asleep in the spitfire. Luckily, I woke up in time and found myself in a shallow dive. If I knew this was it, I'd have to give up one or the other. And this time, I convinced the ministry. So I left control and called through time for APA until the end of the war. I did a conversion to twins during that period. But I always found them uninspiring, they're more like bus driving. After 1945, I let, let my license lapse and went back to air traffic control and had neither the money nor the opportunity to fly. But when I was posted to Cardiff in 1962, I joined a local club there. Since then, I've kept my PPL going. I've added a lot of new types in the logs since then. I've got 133 sticks.